This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, April 10th. And now, please rise for the singing of our Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Foot in the Box podcast. Uh, this is a special episode. My name is Peter Elliott, and I'm joined by my friend Matt. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, so if you listened last week, you know this is a special uh, podcast. Uh, I am in Kansas City with Matt on our annual road trip. Uh, you know what they say, Kansas City, the barbecue capital of the world, the city of fountains, Cowtown, the jazz capital of the world. Paris of the Plains. He's reading that off Wikipedia. Uh, long-time listeners, you'll recognize Matt's voice from, I think, episode 12 and somewhere in the 50s, uh, because every year we, we record one of these these podcasts. So. If I'm not mistaken, those are the most listened to podcasts? Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell, but I'd imagine. <laughs> imagine so. So we're actually coming to you live, not live, but we're recording this live. <laughs> <laughs> from uh, imaginary right now. outside the left field gate, gate A of Kauffman Stadium. Uh, some personnel, blue-collar guys, are getting the field ready for uh, opening day here on Monday. We would have went to a game if, if the Royals played this weekend, but uh, they did not. They opened against the Athletics on Monday. Uh, so we've been uh, in Kansas City since Friday, yesterday. Um, sorry for the wind if that's loud. Um, yeah, we've enjoyed it. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts on the city so far? Well, can I just comment on the Royal Stadium first? Sure. Uh, I was mentioning to Peter how much fun it is to go to a baseball stadium a couple days before opening day. Because everyone's kind of like, there's like an excitement in the air. Everyone's ready sure. to go. The team store is packed. <laughs> uh, people are selling, they're buying crazy hats and sweaters and scarves and golf balls and guitar picks with Royals logos. People are making sure the beer's good to go, ready to flow. Nice. Uh, you got some, I believe, in a thing called Love Plane, pumping up the, the workers, getting them ready for Monday. Yeah. And it's exciting. Yeah, and according to the scoreboard, the uh, the Royals will be up 11-1 to 1 in the second inning. It looks like they're testing out the scoreboard here. Uh, the Royals Park's a little interesting because the best view of the stadium outside the park is actually from the interstate. Uh, uh, going behind the outfield, so if you walk around the stadium, you actually don't get a very good view of it. Not very accommodating for podcast uh, podcasters. Um, yeah, so this this episode will be different. Uh, Matt and I are recording right now, but then uh, I recorded a interview with a Cubs expert, and Paul interviewed an interview with a White Sox expert that we'll record later. So wait, neither of you interviewed me for either of those positions? We did, we did not. Bummer. Opted not to. Yeah, so those will come later if you're looking for some content. Um, but before that, Matt and I uh, are going to interview some, some Royals fans. We're, we're going rogue. Around the stadium. Uh, so that's the plan. Uh, I guess we'll have to update you if, if that doesn't actually happen. So we're going to interview a couple, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into the actual content, the, the White Sox and the Cubs guest. Uh, anything else you'd like to say before we get, get to that, Matt? A life, do- life update for the listeners out there? My wife and I are having a baby. And so <laughs> if you listen to this podcast and uh, you know me and I didn't tell you that already, uh, I'm sorry. And I think you should have already known, but pretty exciting stuff. We might have a little a little babe next year on vacation. Nice. Would you like to announce the name? I would not like to. We're keeping it a secret. But if all things go well, we might name it Eric after my favorite Royals player. Just kidding. Q... Royals by Lord. <laughs> yeah, that's the theme music. Last year we did uh, lots of different free versions falling. of Free Fall. <laughs> this year we're going Lord Royals. Uh, throwback. Yeah, Kansas City's big, big into their Royals. Uh, it's definitely a baseball town, it seems like, rather than the Chiefs or uh, their soccer team. All right, well, I think that does it for us talking. We're going to interview some, uh, some Royals fans, get their take before opening day. And then uh, we'll get to Cubs and White Sox experts.
All right, so we're here with Moses, who actually works for the Royals. Sure do. I would do the bartending and stuff here up in the suites. Okay. So yeah. is that like behind home plate? Yeah. Sweet. Uh, so opening day is Monday. Are you excited? I am pretty excited. It's always a lot of fun to see fans pack the stadium again. How long have you worked for, uh, for the Royals? This will be my second year. Okay. Got in after the uh, the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> kind of missed the boat on that one. But... Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, Kauffman Stadium memory? I was here the... Uh... The wild card game. Oh, when they beat the A's. years ago, yeah. They're playing the A's on Monday. Nice. Uh, have you served anyone famous as a bartender? No, not yet. No? Waiting? Heard stories about Bill Murray, but okay. I haven't served anybody famous yet. Okay, he's kind of a bandwagon fan of lots of good teams. Yeah. Uh, do you have a wins prediction for the Royals this year? I think we'll do pretty good if we can get hot. I haven't looked too good yet, but I mean, it's early in the season. There's still a lot of baseball to be played, but... Okay, playoffs? I think we can make the playoffs. We got okay. a solid group of guys, so. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for your time. You bet. Thank you, guys. All right, I'm with Bruce at Stadium. Uh, Bruce, opening day is on Monday. Are you excited? Yes, I am. Will you be there? Uh, unfortunately, I live out of town, so okay. I won't be able to be there, but I'd okay. like to. This is my first time visiting the stadium, actually. Okay. Do you have a favorite Coffin Stadium memory? Uh, probably the time when I got to go with my dad. Okay. Here before okay. he got too ill, and he really enjoyed it. So being with him at games here, is, I really like. It seems like just being around Kansas City that there's a lot of uh, kind of people that have joined the the Royals bandwagon. Uh, is that like a fun thing to be a part of? Yes. Yeah. Fun two years to oh yes see them succeed. Yeah. Cool. Are you optimistic on the Royals this year? I am. I just uh, hope the pitching holds up and the hitting does. Yeah. And I think we can hold our own. I sure hope we can at least make it for a wild card. Okay. Do you have a wins prediction? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm hoping like about uh, 85 to 90 wins, maybe. Okay. Well, great. I appreciate it. And uh, go Royals. Yes, go Royals. I'm here with the first time podcast uh, guest and obscure Royals fan. You said you're from out of town. Do uh, you go to many Royals games? I have never been to a Royals game. Wow. Are you going to go this year? Yes, I will. Great. Are you optimistic about the Royals' chances this year? No. No playoffs? No. Wow. Uh, do you have a favorite Royals uh, memory? Uh, yes, I do. you care to share what that, what that was? Uh, my only Royals memory was back in 95 when I had a tryout for the Kansas City Royals. Really? Yeah. What position? Pitcher. Make the team? No, I did not. Even when the Royals sucked. That was right. That was, <laughs> they didn't want me. That was right after the strike. So you were. Well, actually, yeah, I think it was 95 or 96. It was Washington okay. State. It's never too late to, to get back into baseball. Oh, it is when you're 46. <laughs> I assure you. No, have you Your seen, arm's not the same. Have you I seen the rookie? The rookie Dennis Quaid did it. He wasn't 46. I think he was like 39. I think as an actor. Yeah, he acted. Yeah. Any prediction? 82. Okay, well, I appreciate it. You can call me Queen B and baby I rule. Let me live that fantasy. We're joined now on the podcast by James Fagan. James covers the White Sox for the Athletic. He was also a former editor at Baseball Prospectus. Uh, you can follow James on Twitter at JR Fagan and that's F E G A N. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks for having me. Well, James, the 2017 season is uh, is underway, uh, and it likely won't be a great season on the field for the White Sox, but I think there will still be plenty to write about and talk about um, as you think about the season ahead, specifically for the White Sox. What are a few major headlines or questions uh, that you're watching this year? Well, I guess I spent probably an hour and a half last night just looking at minor league stat lines, so that <laughs> probably is a good picture of what everyone's going to be doing this year and, you know, checking out 10-second Twitter videos of Juan Moncada taking at bats and Ronaldo Lopez and Zach Collins at high A. And I'm sure once Michael Kopech makes his first start at double A, that'll be an event and everyone's going to be living and dying with minor league games, which possibly is even sillier than, you know, living and dying with every major league game. 
um, and kind of monitoring when that they, those debuts that they expect, probably Zach Birdie first, and then Ronaldo Lopez and Yonda Mancata at some point, and when those are going to take place. It's probably been the major storylines. At the same time, you know, there are some kind of somewhat interesting uh, projects being worked out at the major league level. Uh, Matt Davidson is kind of a reclamation project, um, but, you know, he just had a big game yesterday, so there'll be some hubbub about that for as long as that goes on. Um, yeah, there, it's, we're not going to be watching a pennant race probably, but there are going to be several players who, whether or not they can sustain uh, good performance over the long haul, or whether they can, like, you know, push up their timeline if they're a minor leaguer, it's probably going to be what the season's be spent doing. Yeah, you're in uh, kind of an interesting spot because, you know, in one sense you're on the White Sox beat, but in another sense you're probably also on the Charlotte and the, the Birmingham beat uh, just as much, if not more. So I'm sure it it kind of changes your thought process as you cover the team. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I, I spent this week uh, or last night arranging uh, accommodations in Cleveland, and after that I'm probably going to plan a trip to North Carolina. So it's, it's mm. a weird mix of stuff. Um, there's, there's definitely, you know, you have to caution against getting too wrapped up in, like, the day-to-day of, you know, maybe James Shields' development. Uh, maybe that's not the most meaningful thing long-term for them. Uh, or, you know, counting fingers for Todd Frazier when he's, you know, a free agent. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's definitely being hardcore focused on the future. So a lot of just uh, bugging Tim Anderson and, and Carlos Rodon at their lockers every day. Definitely the new focus. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess thinking about the future and thinking about the fact that we really can't look at, you know, wins necessarily on the field to determine whether 2017 was a success or not. Have you heard anything from Rick Hahn or, you know, just the the people you talked to at the White Sox, what they would view sort of as a successful 2017 season? Are they looking for like a few specific things or I guess how, how should fans approach this year in terms of making sure we're heading in the right direction? Uh, yeah, it definitely gets vague. Rick Hahn spoke uh, on Monday before the opening day that got rained out and said the things he was looking for on the major league side, he used words like culture change, like, uh, you know, more exec- better execution from a, a White Sox team that's been sloppier uh, over the past couple of years. Um, I don't think that was intended in, <laughs> to be a direct dig at Robin Ventura, but uh, it's definitely – they're trying to craft themselves as a sharper outfit that does you know, executes things well. And, you know, if they do that, that would probably keep them from being, you know, the, you know, we think of the archetype rebuilding team as like the Astros of the early 2010s that, you know, lost over 105 games. I don't think they want to be that. I don't think they want to just like descend into an awful season where nothing goes right. I think they probably want to be probably in the seven year win territory where a team that's, you know, under talented, but plays really sharp. If if they're in the seventy one territory, it means things like Matt Davidson hit well, better than expected, or Omar Navais was you know steady as a backstop. And so there are good long term things that could happen that could spike their record. But probably the main thing that fans are going to gauge is whether or not you know at the end of the season, at the start of the season now, we think that Ronaldo Lopez is going to be a mid rotation guy. We think that Lucas Giolito can be rebuilt from what he looked like last year into being, you know, I've heard reports that have him more back as being a number three starter, but I think there's always a hope that, you know, they get him back to kind of a more of a frontline guy. Uh, we think Yamankata is going to be the everyday second baseman. Um, and Michael Kopech is someone that they hope can start as opposed to a lot of people think he can relieve. I think at the end of the season, do we still have the same outlook for a lot of those guys? Do we still, is Zach Collins still definitely going to be a catcher according to the White Sox, but, when all scouts outside the organization don't think he can stay a catcher or are we going to look back at the end of the season and look at a lot of these prospects and have kind of modified uh, views of our expectations where things are a lot more modest, where we're just hoping that Lopez can be an effective late reliever, where we're just hoping Lucas Julio can be anything where we're putting Carson Fulmer in the bullpen. Uh, It's kind of, it'll be an interesting to do where are we now at the end of the season with all these prospects, given how much hype, uh, is involved with a lot of these guys, as is the case when you have new arrivals. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think those the new arrivals are, I mean, they're certainly top 100 prospects. Several of them are, you know, top 15, top 20. But it does seem like there are still 
question marks for sure. Um, out of those, out of the four big ones, Mancada, Kopech, Julito, Lopez, which one would you say is the most kind of surefire, can't miss, and then which one has the the the, the most bust potential? Even though he is a volatile guy, um, the fact that Moncada can play a middle infield position and has plus power, and I think even if he winds up being, he has a good approach, even though he can't figure out breaking balls right now very easily and could be a 30 strikeout rate guy. Like, if he's a guy who has, you know, hits 240 but with lots of power and walks, and if he can play second base, that guy's a regular no matter what. So he won't be maybe the MVP type of guy who, you know, makes Chris Sale look like a distant memory. But I think the floor for him is deceptively high. Um, Giolito is a guy that everyone's kind of worried about right now because, you know, if Giolito doesn't change from where he's at right now, I don't know if he's ever an effective major league pitcher. It's kind mm-hmm. of you're still hoping that his physical frame, you know, the feel for the curveball he's had in the past, all that comes back. If you just took Lucas Giolito now and promote him to the majors and nothing ever changes his development, you you wouldn't have a guy you could do much with. Right? He's his fastball command is not really there. He's in the low mid 90s, and if he can't command his fastball, it doesn't really matter what he does with his curve. So they're obviously in the process of, and Dracana said that they know it's going to take a while to getting him back to his old mechanics before last year, where there was a lot of tinkering done with him by the Nationals. Uh, and they're obviously confident about that process. The White Sox, more than anybody, are confident that they can develop any pitcher or tweak any pitcher. So there's 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 no, like, fear at this point. But Geely is a guy that work needs to be done to realize his potential still. Whereas, hmm. you know, Michael Kopech's obviously not ready for the majors, but it's not there's not a huge leap we need to see between now and Michael Kopech being a guy who could pitch in the seventh and eighth inning as a reliever. So there's – there's still only like so far he can fall at this right. point where we see him. Is there anyone outside of the top, you know, uh, I think there's eight guys in the top 100. Is there anyone outside of that group maybe not getting a ton of buzz or attention that you think has the potential to be a really, really good major league player? Hmm. I mean, I guess I'm tempted to say Dane Dunning is usually, you know, some people might have him in the top eight because uh, there is some, more stability with his being able to start than maybe others since he kind of lives in the zone and throws lots of strikes and you know that's that's always a good starting place uh you know he kind of gets lost in the shuffle because he's the third guy in the nationals package but you know he's a first round pick and was so for a reason he kind of got overshadowed at florida because he didn't get to start very much because they just had this incredibly loaded rotation but guys who can you know be number four number five starters you know that that that's pretty valuable in terms of prospect and certainly a good thing to have at the very back end of your top 10. So he could be someone, you know, we could have a situation where Ronaldo Lopez, Michael Kopech, uh, Lucas Giolito, uh, they're all Carson Fulmer. They're all fireballing relievers. And, uh, you know, Dane Dunning's the guy who's, you know, stoking up innings at, you know, 180, 190 uh, innings per year. So that, that's a, that's a foreseeable uh, outcome. Hmm. My uh, my last question here is, I guess, a little more uh, subjective. You know, for the longest time, it was kind of suspected or maybe even reported that the White Sox were interested in a, a full rebuild because they were kind of skeptical of their fan base and whether they would stick around. You know, after these first few months, after the sale and eating trades, what's kind of your sense for White Sox fandom? Do you, do you sense any sort of uh, regression in their passion or excitement? Um, or do you think maybe those skepticisms from the front office and ownership were misguided? That's it, kind of a multi-layer question. You know, like if you talk to White Sox fans as a group, and I have a little bit, if you corner them, they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm not excited to lose, you know, 90 games this year. But, you know, it's been nothing but kind of frustration the last few years. It's been uh, eight years out of the playoff berth. We're ready for this. At the same time, as at the game yesterday, there are 10,000 people there. So obviously like, there's going to be a real regression or a real setback in how many fans come out to see this team and pay the team money for that, which is, you know, what, why you build a team is that they want to make money and, you know, sell tickets. Uh, so their fears are real in that sense that they're going to see 
uh, an impact on their pocketbook by having a major league team that's, you know, not, uh, you know, top billing at this point. But at the same time, I don't think their fans are going to write them off forever. I think for the most part, they understand the idea of the rebuild. I definitely think there's some uh, bitterness over the fact that failures to compete basically cost them the being able to see Chris Sale, like one of the greatest pitchers in franchise history, win in his prime. Uh, I think kind of the, I don't know if you've seen kind of the sarcastic uh, Deadspin uh, posting about it. I think their editor mm-hmm. uh, has mostly just kind of been uh, critical idea that they, they traded Chris Sale away because they couldn't win with them. And now we're supposed to, you know, listen to them about what, what their plan is in the future. I, I think, right. you know, some people don't trust the fact that uh, it's, it's atypical that the management group that fails to win or fails to contend is then the same guys who are then tabbed to run the rebuild. So right. they have some trust to rebuild in that end, but you know, there've been enough rebuilds. There've been tons of teams that have rebuilt to the fact that fans are not, you know, pulling their hair out idea that this is happening. Definitely the Cubs um, has some impact on that, whether or not they want to admit it. Yeah. And for those of us who are also uh, followers of the Bulls, I think we're also familiar with the idea that uh, Ryan Zerf is maybe loyal to a fault um, at times. Um, as we wrap up here, anything you want to uh, plug at The Athletic, anything you're working on this weekend that listeners can go read? Well, it, it's early yet. Uh, <laughs> I just, I just contributed a part of a column that we did about uh, Derek Holland is a huge wrestling fan. Um, so all the <laughs> team is wearing these wrestling shirts that he's he's bought for everybody. Uh, I'm a wrestling novice, so I barely can piece it together. But basically they think everybody who uh, doesn't think they're going to win is a bunch of haters and they're going to prove them <laughs> wrong. So that was kind of a fun thing to write about. I looked a bit at data about Tim Anderson. He I mean, his first game was against Justin Verlander, so he got a lot of high fastballs, but it looks like it was a consistent attack method by the Tigers against him. So um, he kind of hits high fastballs pretty well, but, you know, they're throwing him above the zone where nobody hits him. So it'll be interesting to see if teams are going to try to tempt him him, uh, over the course of the season by throwing things that look like they're in his wheelhouse but a little above. Uh, So I gave a little data-driven look at that. So those would be the big things I worked on that were pretty fun this week. Well, great. I'd recommend uh, everyone go get a subscription to the athletic. What are we What are we looking at in terms of pricing for this year? Is there a six month subscription that people can get? Uh, I think you can go month to month or bi yearly uh, up front. I think month to month is. Uh, I know we have a twenty percent off deal right now, so that might fudge the numbers. But I think uh, monthly is like five, and if you buy or five or six. And if you buy it all in one lump sum per year, you get basically uh, for $4 per month. Well worth uh, your money. But, uh, James, we appreciate uh, you joining us, and uh, we'll be sure to, to follow along with your work throughout the year. Thank you very much. My friends and I, we've cracked the code. We count our dollars on the train to the party. Well, our Cubs expert uh, on this week's podcast is Daniel Hodgman. He is a writer at BP Wrigleyville. Uh, listeners, you can follow him on Twitter at Daniel underscore Hodgman. That's H-O-D-G-M-A-N. Daniel, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, before we begin, I'm just uh, curious, and we are talking a little bit uh, off air, uh, what is your background? I know you haven't been writing uh, super long about baseball. So uh, how'd you get into it? And I assume you're a Cubs fan, but maybe I'm wrong in assuming that. No, uh, that is a fair assumption. I <laughs> I grew up in Wrigleyville and my family had season tickets for a very long time. Uh, I remember riding my bike to games with my dad when I was a little kid. So I grew up really cheering for the Cubs. And um, I remember the 84 series and they lost after being up three, one, I remember the 89 series really well. Hmm. Um, probably dates, probably ages myself a little bit there, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I've always been a really big Cubs fan. I played baseball growing up, uh, in high school. I went to Evanston high school out in the burbs and I didn't really start writing uh, about baseball until November of last year. Um, I, just kind of started a blog because I enjoy writing. And after five or 10 posts, I noticed that BP Wrigleyville was looking for some new writers. And I put my name in 
on the list, and they invited me to to join. So, so far, so good. It's a pretty short um, (laughs) time to be writing. (laughs) Uh, So I appreciate the moniker of Cubs expert. Oh, yeah. Um, Maybe Cubs hack expert, but... uh, (laughs) You know, if people are uh, enjoying what I'm writing and they find it informative, uh, that's really all that I uh, hope to accomplish. Uh, where did you watch Game 7? So, to tell you that, I have to tell you where I watched Game 6. Okay. My brother and one of my best friends from high school uh, and I drove to Cleveland for Game 6. Bought tickets on the way there in the car, and it was a phenomenal game to be at. By like the third or fourth inning, right after the Addison Russell Grand Slam, we were all looking for tickets for Game Seven, and we could see almost minute by minute as the prices went up. Hmm. You know, and I think within ten minutes they doubled or tripled even. Both of my brother and my friend had to be back for work the next day without jeopardizing their employment, so we bagged it and drove back to Cleveland. Left at like six in the morning and drove back in time for work. And I ended up watching Game 7 at a bar in Wrigleyville called Barn and Company. Uh, I don't know if people know it, but that was Wrigleyville, I guess, more of uh, Lincoln Park. Okay. But, yeah, that's where I watched it with uh, family and friends. It was it was fun. Yeah. How about I, you? Uh, I watched it in uh, Chicago. My brother lives in Chicago. So uh, nice. um, my, my brother and I drove from Champaign up to Chicago after work to watch it with, with him. Um, but I imagine watching it in Wrigleyville is pretty special after growing up, you know, kind of near that area and going to so many games. Yeah. After the, when they won, I basically wept for about six hours. My wife was, she told me she was impressed. Um, <laughs> I just like walked around giving strangers high fives for like three hours. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was great. All right. Well, that was uh, last year. Um, I guess it's time to move on to uh, 2017. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've I've enjoyed quite a bit of your writing in spring training. You had a really good article about looking at projection flops uh, in recent history, because the Cubs uh, seem to be such a sure bet to win the division, to win ninety games, uh, go back to the playoffs. So I guess as a Cubs fan headed into this year, in my mind, I'm expecting the playoffs like without a doubt. If they don't make the playoffs, it's an, like an epic failure, because I can envision. Uh, so many things going poorly for the team and them still having enough to win 90 games pretty easily. So if, like if Baez uh, doesn't uh, evolve into the player, some think he is, or uh, the, the rotation um, shows their age a little bit, I still see so much talent on this team to, to make the playoffs to win 90 games. I guess, first question, uh, is that a fair expectation? And then just as a fan, kind of where are you at headed headed into the season? Sure, yeah, I, I mean... I think um, based on the configuration of the team, the expectation that they make the playoffs is the, the minimum at mm-hmm. this point. And, that, and that's not necessarily just purely as a fan, but as a, from an analytical perspective, it, it's going to take a lot of things going wrong for them to miss it. I think the NL Central is not what it was three years ago when the three teams with the best record, the Cubs, the Pirates, and the Cardinals were all in the same division. So I think that the division is a little bit easier. Their offense, barring two or three guys in the middle of the order going down, I think that offense is is a juggernaut, mm-hmm. which is good because I think the biggest threat to the team, and if you've read that uh, post about teams that have flopped that have had similar expectations. It's pitching and defense, a right? common theme. Yeah, I, I think most likely – uh, the Cubs defense might not repeat the historically good rate of converting batted balls into outs. Uh, you know, no team has ever, I don't think, converted that many, the percentage of batted balls into outs, uh, at least in the past 15 years. There might be a team or two from like the dead ball era that did, I'm not sure. But you know, the pitching is the, the biggest, and I don't know what you want to call it a weakness because they probably have from top to bottom the best starting rotation in or amongst the top five at the very least mm-hmm. in the major leagues. But, you know, looking at the teams that have had similar expectations coming into a new season that ended up flopping, the it was injuries to two starters that really proved to be insurmountable. And 
the Cubs have had such a miraculous run of good health in their starting rotation between 2015 and 2016. I'm not sure. There was an article on, uh, it might have been Fangraphs, maybe Baseball Perspectives, I'm not sure. But someone looked at whether there's ever been a three-year stretch where all the starters made nearly 30 starts from one to five, Mm -hmm. which basically has happened for the Cubs the past two years. And I don't think it's ever happened. Hmm. So, you know, I don't know if there's any one pitcher I would identify as like, oh, that guy's going to get hurt, other than Brett Anderson, I I guess. Like, he's kind (laughs) of a walking, you know, injury rate to happen. But of the top four starters, like all those guys, I can't pick one who is likely to get hurt. But if Anderson goes down, if Montgomery comes in and tries to replace them, struggles, if the guys they picked up that are kind of like the 4A starters, Eddie Butler and Alec Mills, they, if they struggle, and if one of their top four horses goes down for an extended period, I think that gets in the danger zone when they might actually give up too many runs for their offense to just outscore people. And they could, you know, the, the Cardinals aren't bad. The Pirates are going to be kind of like the Cubs from 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of up-and-coming talent. So there's some risk there. Uh, assuming normal health, though, anything less than the playoffs would be pretty exceptional. Something would have to happen, barring those kind of injuries. Yeah, they kind of ensured by signing Anderson that the streak would end of, <laughs> of the five starters in a row or three years in a row. Well, they could have just put they could have just put Montgomery there and then you know uh, avoided the the injury inevitability. But you know, <laughs> I, I got my fingers crossed for Brett. Uh, <laughs> I think he's a fun pitcher, so I'm hoping we get to see a lot of him. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, with those ex- expectations and with kind of how good the Cubs are, it can be a little boring. You know, the last couple of years you had guys that uh, exceeded expectations and just uh, or played up to expectations that were really high. So I asked you, uh, you know, before this podcast to think through a little bit about the guys that might uh, either bust this year, you know, fall well below expectations or – uh, be really good and exceed expectations. So uh, I guess start with the bad. Who are two or three guys that you think have the best chance to to bust this year? First of all, I think that this season is going to be fascinating, even if they're just better than everyone, because <laughs> there's so many little subplots and so many little things that with with like Statcast and all the data out there. I mean, every every starting every start. I think it's really fun to look at the pitch mix, the spin rate, mm-hmm. all those things I think are just fascinating. So if, if any of the, the people that enjoy that kind of stuff are worried, this is going to be a super fun season. Well, today on the um, on the radio broadcast, Pat Hughes was referencing StatCast data. I almost uh, passed out. I could not believe that he was, yeah. he was doing that. <laughs> well, StatCast is owned by MLB, so <laughs> they're pushing it pretty hard. <laughs> um, which is like not necessarily a good thing, and this is a little bit of a side, and I'm sorry, but I think that if MLB owns this new trove of data that is so has so much potential, there's some risk there that other analysts, outside observers, are not really getting it. Yep. And that, anyhow, I, I've already been frustrated with some of that. Um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, so I agree. I think uh, there are few players that based on their performance last year and some of the things we saw in spring training that raised some concerns for me. The first one I'll start with is Addison Russell. I'll, I'll start by saying he had a phenomenal spring. And I'm not even going to talk about defense because I think his defense is going to be top five for the next, you know, five or six years at shortstop. But I'm more worried about him on the offensive side of the ball. He'll always be a valuable player and a starter based mm-hmm. on his defense. But I think a lot of people are picking him as a breakout player because he made strides, striking out a lot less and walking a little bit more last year compared to his rookie. I think there's some hidden danger in citing those high-level stats because while he did strike out less, he he accomplished that by um, making crappy contact with a lot crappier pitches. His rate of swinging at balls outside the strike zone actually went up last year. Uh, Not a lot, maybe 1% or 2%, but it was still, his rookie season was, I think, 30%. And last year, he swung at 
31.5% of pitches outside the zone. So his patience, his eye didn't really improve. Hmm. He just made, you know, weak contact with pitches that he shouldn't be swinging at at all. Kind of the Sterling Castro um, effect. I, yeah, I mean, thankfully, he's, he's not that bad. He's, and you already talked about it. He's no hobby where you don't have to throw like that. You don't have to throw him a strike, really, if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think what we'll see pitchers do, because Addison also struggles with hard stuff up in the zone, especially in. I, I think the way the Cardinals pitched him, especially in the first two games, I didn't see today's game, um, they pitched him with breaking stuff away, which they got him to swing at enough, and hard stuff up and in, which he struggles with. So I think if he's not laying off the the breaking balls away and he get, gets down on the count, you're going to see a lot of whiffs on high fastballs. Any other guys that you think uh, could be kind of uh, bust this year? Not bust, that's kind of a bad uh, overused word, but just not be as good as people are expecting? Uh, I think uh, – this might surprise people. I think Wilson Contreras could be not the offensive juggernaut that people think he's going to be behind the plate. Uh, and I'll throw some stats at you to support that. His uh, ground ball fly ball ratio is almost two to one ground balls. Hmm. And that is not a recipe for a power hitter. Yeah. He's hitting way too many ground balls to generate, you know, the doubles and home runs that, you know, Rizzo and Bryant do. Um, but last year he managed to hit 12 home runs on, you know, 250, maybe a little more than that at bats, and that's a that's a really high rate of home runs. So I looked at his fly ball, how many of his home runs turned into fly balls? Almost a quarter of his fly balls, 23.5 percent, turned into home runs last year. League average of uh, home run per fly ball ratio is normally around 10 percent. Hmm. So he was dramatically above league average, which I don't think is sustainable, right? unless he just always cranks it when he hits the ball in the air. Uh, and I guess the first game of the season shows that might be the case. <laughs> um, but also, his batting average on balls in play was 339, which is 40 points higher than league average mm-hmm. in 2016. So, and generally, batting average of balls in play, as you and probably a lot of your listeners know, a lot of that has to do with luck, especially yeah. if you're hitting that many ground balls. So I think there's some risk there with uh, his, his performance. Uh, some other things, just these are really quick ones just to look out for. I, I mentioned some of these in a, a post I did for BP Wrigleyville about at the end of spring training, just kind of looking at a few numbers that carry over from spring training to the regular season. Uh, Rizzo's uh, strikeout rate was up 10% uh, in spring training versus last year. Hmm. Uh, and that's a stat that tends to carry over. It tends to normalize in the sample size we get in spring training. So that's something to look, look out for. Uh, another thing is Zobris was hitting a lot more fly balls, which is good because he had a really low average launch angle last year while still hitting the ball. His average exit velocity was the same as Rizzo's and Bryant's. Hmm. So he's just hitting way too many ground balls in line drive to turn into, you know, ground balls or uh, singles when he could be hitting more doubles and home runs like Rizzo and Bryant. So we'll see if that carries over. Um, on the flip side of the coin, yeah, yeah, there's a couple players that um, I think the the fans have uh, maybe don't appreciate or maybe I just have a, a secret love for um, that I think are going to surprise a lot of people. Okay, let's hear it. Um, yeah, the first one is Hector Rondon. He is like a forgotten man. He had a terrible spring. He had a terrible World Baseball Classic. Uh-huh. Everyone remembers him in the second half of last year being awful. But um, a lot of people forget how good he was in 2015 in the first half of 2016. He was a top five reliever against lefties and righties. And when he came back from the tricep strain, he just never got his control back. If you look at his uh, the heat maps for his uh, like especially his slider, he just couldn't locate it at all in the the second half of last year. We don't have the location data for for very much stuff yet, so I, I don't want to make any conclusions yet. He also abandoned his two seam fastball and throws almost all four seamers since the injury. Uh, I think he was helping from locating it, so he went four seamer because it's, it's a little straighter. But um, 
the two seam fastball was such a deadly weapon. It generated like I, I don't know off the top of my head, but like forty percent ground balls or something like that against lefties and righties. So between that and his slider, he was just deadly. He, he looked good today, um, but I think he'll he'll turn it around. I hope. Um, but I think he could surprise a lot of people by being basically as good or better than Wade Davis. Hmm. Um, wow. The other guy um, is also a reliever is Carl Edwards Jr. I'm not sure everyone appreciates just how good he is. I mean, he might throw – he might have a top five fastball in Major League Baseball. It's not because he throws as hard as Chapman. It's the combination of – his velocity, which is what I think 94 to 97, he top out at. Mm-hmm. But he throw his fastball has the second highest spin rate on average recorded um, in the Statcast era. So since we've gotten spin rates, his is the second highest it's, revolution per minute. Is it behind Chapman? Uh, Chapman's up there. He's actually uh, Edwards is a little bit higher on average. Hmm. Chapman will wow. top out higher than that. Um, yeah, uh, especially for that, I might be wrong. It might be that I was looking at right-handed pitchers, he, but he might be close to Chapman. No, yeah, I, rem- I remember thing. hearing that set last year. Yeah, his effectiveness against righties and lefties was pretty close to how good Andrew Miller was last year. Just think about that for a second. Yeah, he was great. I mean, he was great today too. He looked really good today. I mean, I, I think the the biggest difference between him and Andrew Miller is that. Edwards struggles a little bit more with his uh, location, but um, if he's even close to the strike zone, he's going to punch tons of guys out. So anyhow, um, I think Carl Edwards Jr. is going to be, I call him Carl the Destroyer. Uh, (laughs) Carl is the perfect guy to come in and extinguish rallies like he did today. Do not make him a closer. I want him to be our fireman. (laughs) He gets lefties and righties out. He is uh, I have like the biggest man crush on him ever. I love him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and anyone else? Uh, you gonna throw a, a Hayward in there? Or where? How do you feel about him? Oh, I just don't know what to say. You know, there were some good things in spring training, and I'm not even talking swing mechanics. Just last year, he had a, a really awful average um, launch angle. It was. I mean, everyone saw it, right? It makes sense. He just hit two hoppers to the right side of the infield all season. Yep. So his, uh, but that that showed up in the in kind of other statistics as well. He he was just hitting the ball. Not that he wasn't hitting it. His uh, exit velocity was actually decent, but his launch angle was so bad that just tons and tons of of ground balls. Yep. In spring training, his uh, ground ball to fly ball ratio was tipped from almost one and a half ground balls per fly ball to one and a half fly balls for ground ball. So he flipped it almost on its head, hmm. which is a good thing. Uh, I think it's a good sign. The results weren't really there. And his like, walk rate was a little down, strikeout rate was a little up. Uh, so there's some, some warning signs buried in there too. But I think the, the thing to watch with him is how does he handle velocity on the middle half of the plate? He, if, he's, if he's getting to those pitches and he's going the other way with stuff away, uh, I think that's a really good sign, and he'll be fine. So, but there's just too, too little data out there to really say whether I'm um, optimistic or not at this point. Yep, yeah, that's a that's a pretty, I think, fair place to be in. Kind of closing up here. You mentioned earlier your thoughts on the the Cardinals and the Pirates. Uh, it seems like you know it's not a division that's as good as it was two years ago, but it's still you know nowhere close to like the worst division in baseball. Um, What's uh, what's your outlook for the, the the rest of the division? I guess specifically the teams that are trying to be good this year. Between the, I mean, it's hard to say what the Brewers and the Reds are going to do, just because I think they're, you know, doing a Cubs style from five years ago rebuild. Yep, uh, and probably rightfully. So I think they'll probably be the the Brewers will be four and the Reds will be five in the division. I think the Pirates have a pretty wide variance between what they'll be depending on how their young players fare when they arrive. So, you know, I could see them being third or I could see them being second, anywhere between like, you know, 80 to 92 or three wins. And, and whereas the Cardinals, I think they have a lower floor, but also a lower ceiling. 
Mm-hmm. I just don't see the Cardinals being that good with their starting pitching. I mean, I think after Carlos Martinez, every one of those guys would be the fifth starter on the Cubs. I just don't think their starting pitching is very good. I think their offense is probably pretty good, but it's not as good as the Cubs. So mm-hmm. if the Pirates' young players come up and, and really adjust quickly to major league pitching, I think they'll probably be better than better than the Cardinals in the end. So that's what I have to say. Yeah, about the Central. <laughs> All right, uh, lastly, uh, prediction, um, and feel free not to give one, but uh, Baseball Prospectus has the Cubs right now at, at 92 wins. Fangraphs has 93 wins, I guess, over under those projections if you had to pick one for the Cubs. I'm going to take the over on both of those. I think, they'll, I think they'll get to 95 and maybe higher wins. I think those projections are based on a reversion to the mean and a couple things that will not revert. Like their their defense is gonna be good this year. Um and uh mm-hmm. their offense is really good. I think if they're young players, a little more track record, you'd see those projections based on my, you know, pretty surface level knowledge of how those projections work, they take multiple years into account. Um so if you don't have a big track record, you know, that, that builds in some um so additional risk that yep. can reduce the number of wins. Anyhow, yeah, I would say ninety five or higher. That's uh that's a a good season for sure. It's nuts uh so you know the Cubs are this juggernaut of a team. Uh just thinking through what it would take to win 117 games like to break the record. Uh Yeah. Like I just can't imagine like watching a team do that. Like they were awesome last year and they still would have to win, you know, 12 or so more games to to break the record. So You know So here's how I I can see that happening. Um, and I haven't like broken this down in any quantitative way, but if we get 2015 Jake Arietta mm-hmm. for three three quarters of the season or more, if we get 2016 Kyle Hendricks for the, for the whole season, if Brett Anderson you know gives us 25 starts and he's solid, I think I think he does. The last time he threw that many innings, he was really good. Uh, and Bryant takes a step forward. Rizzo, Rizzo holds steady. Hayward, you know, returns to some semblance of competency. And um, both Russell and Contreras have kind of the above 50% projection years. I think you can see that. Yeah. Um, but it takes like all those things happen. Also, uh, you know, kind of ridiculous health throughout the summer. So. Uh, a lot of things have to go right, even even 105, 110. Um, but, yeah, it's fun to think about, right? That would be a glorious <laughs> summer of uh, of wins. <laughs> yeah, I just can't even, like last year, I, the Cubs won so much. Like most of the games I watched, they won. I just can't imagine what it would be like if they won even more <laughs> games. than Yeah, that. yeah. I think uh, if you remember, was it – was it July? They were really bad. They were like sub 500. Yeah, right. They're one of the worst break. records yeah. in baseball. Yep. Um, yeah. So like you know, mid June into July, like I think that is what would happen if a lot of the starting pitching get hurt. Because if you look at those the stats over um, that that stretch, the offense was fine. The defense was consistent. It was the starting pitching really fell off from what they've been doing early in the season. So for all the Cub fans out there that want to experience the emotional damage of a bad Cub season this year, if starting pitching falters, just remember that month <laughs> and you'll, you can get back to that place. Yeah. That wasn't much fun. All right. Uh, Daniel Hodgman, he writes for BP Wrigleyville. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And if people don't read BP Riggerville, uh, I highly encourage people to check it out. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more uh, talented writers than I there putting out really good stuff. So um, I encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me on. It's been fun. No problem. Yeah. Uh, I assume uh, you were on uh, The Score recently, uh, the, the new uh, Bernstein and, and Goff show. I assume this was, this was a better experience, right? <laughs> I didn't really know what to expect. I, I just assumed that one of them would have be the contrarian and just disagree with me or call me out in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, they're actually quite, uh, it, it was a, it, it was a very positive experience. So I'll just leave it at that. That's and great. This has been fun too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, 
this stuff is uh this stuff is fun for me. So um you know, I appreciate the uh the invitation. I'd be happy to do it um at other points in the season if there's something you think I could contribute. Yeah, absolutely. Um well thanks, uh thanks so much for doing this. Yep, my pleasure. Yeah, good luck, go cub. <laughs> yep, have a good one. In the hotel room, we don't care. We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams, but everybody's like crystal made back diamonds. Well, thanks uh, for listening. If you've uh, made this far, appreciate it. Matt and Peter here finish up, finishing up the last leg on Sunday nights uh, due to a uh, uh, direction error. Uh, the trip was about 30 minutes longer than it should have been, but couple minutes away from home. It's about the journey, not the destination. Yeah. A couple minutes from, uh, from home now. So, uh, yeah, Matt, did you enjoy Kansas City? Had a great time in Kansas City. Would recommend going to a Royals game. All you baseball fans out there. Even though we did not go to one. Even though, well, the stadium seems nice. They played nice music over the loudspeakers. Do you want to give a score update of the Royals? Yeah, when we, were, we were leaving uh, Sunday, we saw that scoreboard update. They were up like 20 to 3 on the test scoreboard. So we'll see how that plays out Monday. Home openers at 2.30 or 3. So go Royals. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed our Royals fan interviews. Uh, they were fun to record. Sorry if the wind was a little loud. Uh, next week, Paul and I will be back for our normal podcast our normal segments so make sure to check that out I think uh, that's about it I've been blogging every day proving the haters wrong so check that out at footinthebox.com uh, Matt you had a very interesting uh, Q&A on, on Saturday what are we I think we're up to 15 page views just from Twitter wow who knows what the Google search viral Twitter. yeah yeah so thanks for listening I appreciate it stay royal Foot in the box listeners. And remember, as Paul always says, to keep a foot in the box. Till next time, America. Peace.